Oh God, we thank you for um, the blessings of health this morning. Lord, we thank you that all of us here are healthy and that we're able to attend worship this morning and we're here to, um, to study your word together. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would bless this time. Lord, I pray that you would also bless and, and uh, take care of anyone who's not able to be here, whether because of sickness or because they're traveling. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you would be with them and uh, that you would also bless our time together here this morning as we study your word. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, this is a little more formal than I had expected, but that's all right. Uh, I'm up here on a podium above with a microphone, and normally we're in this little room. You know, it's much more intimate with a whiteboard and that sort of thing. So, uh, But that's okay. I'll take what I can get because teaching real people is so much better than teaching to my phone recording, which is what I've been doing the last few months. So I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy to begin a brand new series with you guys because I think uh, this is going to be really good. I'm sure you know what the series is if you've been in church and you've been hearing. Um, I've announced it the last few weeks, but I'll remind you again. What we're going to be doing in these next, I don't know how many weeks this is entirely going to be. It's going to depend on how fast we move along and, and how much I want to cover. But we're going to be doing a series here in Sunday School for the foreseeable future on the sacraments. Now we're going to be talking about baptism, and we're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper. And I'm really excited about this series because there's very few things that are more fun to teach on than really controversial things. <laughs> there's just something really fun about teaching on that. And not because I'm a controversial person that just likes to you know, stir up trouble, but really because controversial things uh, really need uh, careful study and clarity for each one of us so that we can try to understand them and we can uh, come to the scriptures and have a good understanding of these sorts of things. And uh, as I'm sure you well know, the sacraments in Protestant evangelical Christianity is a very high and hotly debated issue, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's something that really divides Christians. And I think that in, in one sense is really sad because, you know, otherwise we have two groups of Christians that really agree on almost everything else. But then on the issue of baptism, they have to split and create two different denominations. And I think there's something that's a little bit sad about that. Um, but it also shows at the same time that we value the truth. Right? We value what we believe the Bible is teaching. And there's something important in that too. And so uh, I just want you to know that today, baptism is very controversial among Protestant evangelicals. But it's not just today that baptism has been controversial. It's been controversial since the time of the Reformation. Um, how many of you have heard of the Protestant reformer Ulrich Zwingli? Okay, we have one person who's heard of Zwingli. Really? Okay, so Zwingli... Zwingli was, yeah, I, Robert, I know you've heard of him too. I just assumed you were being a Presbyterian and didn't want to raise your hand. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Zwingli, he was one of the most important reformers right up there with Luther and Calvin at the time of the Reformation. And Zwingli, he was a fantastic reformer, taught so many good things. He's one of, really considered to be the very first reformed of the Reformation reformers. And um, Zwingli, very famously taught this. He said, let him who talks about going under, go under. Let him who talks about going under, go under. All right. Now, if you're not familiar with what he's talking about there, he's referring to the Anabaptists who were practicing baptism by immersion only, going under the water. 
And Zwingli said, all right, if you want to go under the water, let's put you under the water. And what he meant by that is we're going to execute you. So Zwingli was teaching that we need to execute the Baptists. Right? That's what he was teaching. Now, we may not uh, be teaching today that we want to kill other Christians, that we may not um, be quite that radical today. But sometimes we might feel like it when we have conversations, right? because we just don't agree. This is controversial. And so what I want to do in this series is bring some clarity to this issue. We want to study the sacraments and try to understand them. And um, as we begin to do that, I just want to sort of talk a little bit about why the sacraments are controversial. Why do Christians sort of struggle so much to find clarity on this issue? And part of the reason why we struggle to find clarity on the sacraments is because the Bible just doesn't have a lot of direct statements for us about some of the controversial issues of baptism and the Lord's Supper and and the sacraments in general. So, for example, wouldn't it be amazing in Scripture if it said somewhere, thou shalt baptize your children? Wouldn't that be great? No one thinks that would be great at all? Come on, yes, that would be amazing, right? As Presbyterians, right, we believe in infant baptism, and we would love it if the Bible just came right out and said, We believe in this. You need to believe in this. Thou shalt baptize your children. That would be great. Um, Even as Presbyterians, we'd be happy if it said, Thou shalt baptize believers only. Because then we would know definitively that we were wrong, and we would immediately change and conform to the word of God. Right? We would love it if we had absolute, clear, explicit statements in this area. But we don't. We don't have explicit statements on this. The Bible, in God's wisdom, has not revealed to us specifically and explicitly these issues. Do we baptize adult professing believers only, or do we baptize uh, children of believers? So, we don't have the explicit statements that we would like. And that's where the controversy comes in. Because the issue is, if the Bible doesn't say something explicitly, then we have to try to use what the Bible does say to figure out the implications of what the Bible says, or those things that are implicit. If we have to sort of use logic, we have to use the statements that the Bible does say in order to figure out what it does not say. Okay, And uh, that's just good Bible interpretation. That's how you do it. The scripture says in one place that God the Father is God. And then it says in another place, Jesus is God. And then it says in another place, the Holy Spirit is God. And then we derive from that our doctrine of the Trinity, not because the Bible uses the word Trinity, but because the Bible teaches all of these things around Jesus is God, Holy Spirit is God, the Father is God. And then we come up with the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one in essence and three in person. So this is just how we study the Bible. We have to look at what it does say to figure out what it uh, doesn't say so that we can do what we believe God is requiring us to do. So that's where the controversy comes in. The issue between Presbyterians and Baptists and Lutherans and Anglicans and Wesleyans and whatever other denominations you want to throw in there. The the issue between all of them is how we understand what the Bible does say and how we then put all that together to figure out what the Bible does not say explicitly. Okay, Does that make sense? We disagree about how we do that. And so the purpose of this whole series as we go along through our study of the sacraments, is to study what the Bible does say and then figure out what we should believe based on what the Bible says. 
Okay? That is our goal. So next then what I want to talk about is sort of uh, what we're going to do in this series. How is this series going to be structured? We've got kind of the controversy out of the way. We know we're dealing with a heated topic. And so how are we going to approach this? What are we going to do? Well, firstly, in this series, we are going to approach, like I said, both baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we're going to do it in that order. Okay? So first, we're going to spend time talking about baptism. And then secondly, we're going to look at the Lord's Supper. And... Within each of those two big sections, baptism and the Lord's Supper, we're going to do the same thing. So let's say for baptism, which is what we're going to start doing today once I get done with this introduction. Firstly, we are going to look at historical theology with regard to baptism. Now, don't be, don't be scared of that term. Right? Historical theology sounds very academic. All it means is that we're studying what theologians and commentators and great teachers of scripture throughout history have said about baptism. So we're going to look at what has the church taught about baptism? How did the church practice baptism right after the time of the apostles? What did Augustine, the greatest, probably the greatest theologian in church history, what did he have to say about baptism? What did Luther say? What does the Lutheran tradition say about baptism? What has the Reformed tradition historically said about baptism? What is, where the Baptists come from? And what do they say about baptism? Right, so we're going to look at history. How have Christians, just in terms of the whole Catholic lowercase c, the whole universal church, how have Christians understood the doctrine of baptism? All right? That's the first thing we're going to do in this baptism section. Then the second thing that we're going to do is we're going to look at Scripture and what Scripture has to say. Which I think is you know, fairly important to do when we're trying to figure out what the Bible says about something. We don't want to just look at history, although history is important. We want to see how the Spirit has worked in other generations to, to raise up great teachers to teach us the Word. But we first and foremost now, secondly, want to look at Scripture. And so we're going to then, in this part of the series, look at what the Bible says about baptism. What are all of the, the passages that have to um, have something to tell us about baptism. But we're not only going to look at the New Testament passages, we're going to look at Old Testament passages. Because believe it or not, the Old Testament has a lot to tell us about baptism and all of the things that are sort of woven in to what the New Testament describes about baptism. And uh, when we're in this scriptural section, looking at what the Bible has to say about baptism and the Lord's Supper... We're also going to be looking at what people call today biblical theology. Now, when I first came to RTS last year and I heard the term biblical theology, I signed up for a course called Introduction to Biblical Theology. This was last fall. And I thought, oh, right, this course is going to teach me how to do theology that's biblical. You know, makes sense. Actually, that's not what biblical theology is. Well, it's not that it's not biblical. What biblical theology is, it's its own sort of field of study. And what biblical theology does is it looks at the scriptures and it looks for themes and typology. It looks for patterns and then traces those patterns out throughout the whole canon of scripture. So for example, here's what a biblical theologian wants to do. He's going to look at the Garden of Eden in Genesis and he's going to say, oh, God had a promised land. 
And God gave that promised land to Adam. And Adam, if he wanted to stay in that promised land, had to obey God. And Adam didn't obey God, and he was exiled from the promised land. And that pattern then is repeated with Israel. Because Israel is given the promised land of Canaan. And if they want to stay in that land, they obey. If they don't obey, they're kicked out. And that's exactly what happens. They go into exile. It's like a second pattern. The thing happens again. Okay, That's biblical theology. Looking at the patterns of Scripture and what they can tell us and, and how they can inform us about how to read the Bible. And so we're going to be doing that with respect to the sacraments. Because guess what? A lot of the stuff that Paul and Peter and Jesus bring up about the sacraments, especially about baptism, those patterns or those ideas about baptism are repeated in the Old Testament. Or really, Jesus is repeating them because they were first showed up up in the Old Testament. For example, Paul refers to Israel when they go through the Red Sea. Remember, Jesus or God parts the Red Sea. Right in Egypt, so that Israelites could go through it on dry ground. And then he brought the seed down and it buried all of the Egyptian army. Remember that in the Exodus? Paul says that when Israel went into the waters, they went through a baptism. Interesting. Israel went through a kind of baptism when they went through the Red Sea. And furthermore, Pharaoh's army went through a kind of baptism. They were immersed in judgment, and they perished. Peter talks about the flood of Noah being a type of baptism in 1 Peter chapter 3. And that baptism, on the one hand, saved Noah and his family, and the waters of that baptism of the flood also brought judgment on evil. So you can see there's a lot of typology going on here. There's patterns, there are themes in the Old Testament that need to be looked at as they relate to the doctrine of baptism in particular and the sacraments in general. All right? So when we're in our scriptural section of this series, we're going to be looking at those kind of themes and what they can tell us about what baptism means. Because all of that is going to be very important for rightly understanding it. I think one of the strengths of the Reformed tradition which we as Presbyterians hold to, is that we have a very strong view and central view of the Old Testament. And because we have that, I think it gives us a unique perspective on baptism that helps us to be the most biblical out of all the traditions that are out there. Because almost every other tradition wants to sideline the Old Testament and say, that doesn't matter. We only look at what the New Testament has to say. All right, so studying the whole counsel of God, I think, gives us a little bit of a leg up. It helps us to be more clear and, um, uh, I think, more biblical on our doctrine. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the whole of God's Word, Old and New Testament, and what it has to say about baptism and the Lord's Supper. All right, so we're going to deal with history. We're going to deal with Scripture. And then the third part of the series is going to be um, the theological side. Uh, we are going to... Once we've finished looking at all the scriptural passages that deal with baptism and the Lord's Supper, then we're going to put history and the Bible together and figure out how we talk about the sacraments. What are the sacraments? What is baptism? What does baptism do? Who should be baptized? What is the Lord's Supper? What is Jesus' presence in the Lord's Supper? What does the Lord's Supper do for us? Who should receive the Lord's Supper? 
Right? We're taking all of this information and we're putting it together in a logical, coherent way that helps us easily understand the things that the Scripture teaches. All right? Does that sound like a good idea? Are you up for that in this series? We're going to look at history, Scripture, and then we're going to put it all together in theology. All right? So that's what we're doing, and I hope that that will be helpful for you as we dig into what the Scripture has to say about these things and try to understand it. All right, so that's my introduction. With that being the introduction, just let me ask really quickly, are there any questions about things we will cover or won't cover or anything like that before I get into the history side of the doctrine of baptism? Any questions at all? All right, well, I'm going to try to, as we go through this series, pause for questions. So if you do have one, feel free to raise your hand and interrupt me, or you can just wait for a time when I'll ask for questions. I'll try to remember to do that here and there so that uh, I can make sure that I'm, I'm helping you out in any way that I can. All right, so let's look at the history related to baptism. Remember, we're starting with the doctrine of baptism, and then we're going to deal with the Lord's Supper. Looking at baptism then, the history, how has the church practiced baptism and what have they believed about baptism um, throughout history? So let's look at the early church first. The early church period that I'm talking about here is about something like 100 to 300 AD. So we're talking like, you know, about a generation after Christ and then the next few hundred years. All right. So this is very, very early in Christian history. This is before the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. Before the church had come to full articulation of a lot of theological principles. Um, they still believed them, of course, but they, they hadn't come to a, a, a full articulation of it. And so this is very, very early, right after the time of the Apostles. What did the church believe about baptism and how did they practice it? All right. Well, here's the first thing that I noted down is that Christians practiced baptism. That seems kind of uh, simple, but it's true. They practiced baptism. Baptism was very, very important to early Christians. In fact, if people came to, like say adults, if they came to Christ, they believed in Christ, right? They confessed that Jesus is Lord and believed in their heart that God raised him from the dead. And when Christians became saved as professing believers, they had to go through about a two to three year training program before the church would administer baptism to them. They went through a long process of, of listening to careful teaching of God's word and careful um, principles about how to live the Christian life because the church did not want to have a bunch of unbelievers in the church. Right? They wanted to make sure that these people were well-educated and they knew what they were getting into and it wasn't just some kind of emotional, you know, hyper, super-fast conversion that they're going to fall away from the next week. So baptism was very important. It was not something that was taken lightly. They were going to make sure that these Christians really were believers before they were going to administer it to them. But with that being said, even though Christians practiced baptism, and they had a very strong view about baptism and making sure that professing believers really did know what they were getting into, uh, Christians did practice in these early centuries infant baptism. Okay? Infant baptism is not something that appears in the Middle Ages under the Roman Catholic Church, infant baptism shows up in the very first centuries of the church. Now, we can't say, historians can't say precisely when it starts. 
The very earliest evidence that we have comes from a guy by the name of, um, let's see here, comes from, uh, where is it in my notes? There it is. comes from a guy by the name of Irenaeus. Now, you've probably never heard of Irenaeus. That's okay. Um, Irenaeus, though, is one of the most important early Christian writers. He lived from about 130 to 202 AD. So we're talking, he's right there in the second century. Very, very early. He, um, Irenaeus um, was very well connected with people who were mentored by the Apostle John. And Irenaeus says that infant baptism was being practiced at least as early as the second century. So this is this the earliest we can go back. We don't know what happened before that. And those who object to infant baptism will want to say that uh, infant baptism didn't happen until Irenaeus says it happened. And uh, really, we can't say whether it happened before that or not. We assume that it did, honestly, because we're Presbyterians, right? We assume the apostles were baptizing infants, but uh, we just don't know for sure. And that's, that's part of the controversy in history. How do we interpret some of these things? But we know at least that they were baptizing infants very, very early, at least 180 AD. That's only about 100 and 140 years after Jesus was on earth, so very close to when he was there. Um, we also know from the early church that the mode of baptism was not important. Now, does anyone know, what do I mean when I say the mode of baptism? What does that mean? Yeah, right. Exactly. That's exactly right. You know, dunking, uh, sprinkling, uh, pouring. There's a number of, like, different ways that Christians have practiced baptism, right? Here, we practice something like a sprinkling, you know, to take a little bit of water and just kind of sprinkle it on the head. Um, some, some Presbyterian churches will practice pouring. Well, they sort of take, like, a pitcher or a bowl or something and pour the water over the head of the one being baptized. And then, of course, you've got the Baptists that are very passionate about immersion. Baptism has to be, you have to completely be dunked under the water, otherwise it's not a real baptism. And so that's another mode of baptism, is the immersion. And if you read the very early Christian writers, they're going to tell you that the mode doesn't matter. For them, you can be baptized by immersion, and archaeologists have found all kinds of, like, you know, like hot tub sort of size things where people were immersed in uh, Christian churches. Other times they find like very, very little uh, places that held water for baptisms, places you could not possibly have been immersed in. And in fact, the theologians, um, the early Christian writers, they say, you know what? You can be baptized by immersion. You can be baptized by running water. You can be baptized by pouring. You can be baptized by sprinkling. For them, it was not a big deal. The whole point that they said, the early church said, about baptism is that you need to, first of all, be baptized with water. It has to be with water somehow. And then it has to be in the name of the triune God. Okay? That was what counted for a baptism. That was what was necessary. And um, so the mode of baptism wasn't important for them. But here's where it gets a little bit tricky. Okay? So we know they were baptizing infants. We know that the mode of baptism wasn't that important. We know they were practicing baptism and took it very seriously. But the issue that's a little bit cloudy, and this is where it gets kind of uh, difficult when you're trying to read the early Christian writers, and that is there was not a lot of clarity in the early church about precisely what baptism actually does. But what it actually does. And even today, I would say that, you know, I think by and large, Christians, including myself, have an issue with, with describing 
and clarifying exactly what baptism actually does when you administer it. Now, there are some Christians who don't have any difficulty articulating that. On the one extreme over here, you have the typical Baptist view, which says baptism is nothing more than a sign. It is nothing more than a public declaration of your faith in Christ. That's all it is. It has no spiritual significance. It's not a means of grace. It is just a sign. And then on the other side of the extreme, you've got the Roman Catholic view, which sort of uh, developed in the Middle Ages. And that view says, no, 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 baptism is not just a sign. I mean, it is a sign. But baptism is something way more than a sign. Baptism itself actually works automatically to justify you when the waters are poured over you. And so Roman Catholics believe in a very strong view of what's called regenerative baptism. Meaning that when you are baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, they're going to say that that baptism actually justifies you. It infuses you with grace so that you actually become morally pure. And you are justified and declared righteous before God because you have been cleansed by the waters of baptism. That's, you've got your, sort of your other extreme there. On the one hand, the Baptists say it's just a sign, and they're perfectly happy articulating that. Roman Catholics say, nope, it's not a sign. It is regenerative. It saves you, and that's what it does. In the early church, in the early church there's not a ton of clarity about exactly what it does. They weren't, the early church wasn't explicitly Baptist in that way. And it wasn't exclusively Roman Catholic. You kind of get this mix of ideas. And certain authors say one thing and other authors say another thing. Some use strong language. Some deny the strong language a few pages later. So it's very difficult to figure out exactly what uh, was being said here. But one thing is for sure is that for the early church, baptism, whatever it was, had some kind of spiritual significance. It was doing something to the recipient. It was a means of grace in some way. And some authors took that and made it much stronger and said, yes, baptism is saving you. Other authors said, no, it's not really saving you. You're you're saved by faith, but it's doing something else, but we're not really sure exactly what. And so a lot of times they just sort of paraphrase passages of Scripture when they're asked what it does. And so all of this is just sort of to say, in the early church, what baptism does is very ambiguous. They didn't know exactly. They didn't know how to express it. And in some ways, that's okay, right? Because the Bible is not super clear on what it does either. The Bible says some very specific things about it, and it also says some very nonspecific things about it. And we'll be looking at that when we get to Scripture and figuring out exactly um, what to make of that. All right, we've got two minutes before I have to be done here. Um, I think, let me just, uh, maybe I'll just pause for questions here and we'll call that good. Um, What I wanted to do today was also look at the Roman Catholic doctrine of baptism and sort of dig into that a little bit more. But I think we'll save that for next week because that's going to take more than two minutes to to do. So are there any any questions at all about what we've talked about so far um, with regard to the early church and their understanding of baptism or just this series in general? In the Roman Catholic view, it, it seems to be like a washing of the slate. So almost as if you took a dirty dish and cleaned it with water. Right. The slate is clean, but it can certainly get dirty again. Exactly. So in infant baptism, it, because it typically happens with an infant, it's more of a 
cleansing of original sin mm-hmm. uh, is, is my understanding of their approach. Yeah, it, um, it's, a, it's not, technically it's not quite a cleansing of original sin because you can't really cleanse that until heaven because they can still sin. Um, it's more of a cleansing of the guilt wrought upon you by your original sin. Because even in baptism in Roman Catholic circles, when you're baptized, you are um, cleansed of the guilt, but you still have a sin nature that is able to sin again. Which is why they call baptism the first plank of justification. Because it's the first time that you are justified. But then every time you sin after that, you have to go back to the church and participate in more sacraments to then be re-justified. So that's, um, yeah, that's a good, good point to bring out there. Well, we'll talk more about Roman Catholic uh, baptism next week because it's really important, especially when we get to the Reformation and in understanding the difference between the Roman Catholic view and the Lutheran view, which I grew up with, the Lutheran view. So that'll be, um, I think, fun to talk about next week and, and discuss that a little bit. All right, any other questions before we wrap up here? All right, well, appreciate your patience and your attention. And I hope this series will be helpful for you. So let's, uh, let's pray, and then I'll let you go. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for the sacraments, Lord. They are a gift to us. Um, they are here to strengthen and to nourish our faith and our trust in you. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us to understand them and uh, to get clarity on any issues that we have. Or, um, they're sort of foggy in our minds or that we've just never explored before. Lord, I pray that this series would be helpful for us and you'd give us clarity of thought and clarity of mind so that we can faithfully understand your word and uh, believe what you want us to believe. We pray now that you'd prepare us for worship and for the hearing of your word today. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray.